Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I want to bring in uh, Robert James Woolsey Jr. He was the former head of the Central Intelligence Agency from 1993 uh, through 1995. And uh, Mr. Woolsey, thank you so much for joining us. I would love to get your take uh, on what the leak that we have been uh, hearing about and reading about in The Washington Post, what damage that could do uh, to relationships in the intelligence community and how long lasting uh, the ramifications could be. We don't know without knowing the substance of the leak, and I very much hope we don't know the substance of the leak because it could be uh, uh, quite uh, damaging. It could be anything from uh, uh, quite damaging uh, to innocuous. Uh, We don't know. And uh, that's part of the nature of uh, this intelligence uh, business is uh, you often don't know whether something is uh, important or not important or uh, discloses a source and method or not. Uh, uh, based on what can be uh, said uh, publicly. And uh, uh, there's different stories and different approaches coming out on this, so it's really hard to tell. Well, although you you have to imagine that the New York Times and the Washington Post aren't completely baseless uh, in their reporting, so you do have to wonder, even if, say, uh, the leak, as you say, uh, was not necessarily as potentially harmful as it's necessarily being reported, you do have to wonder, somebody was upset enough in the intelligence community to leak this. Well, uh, upset is not a good uh, judgment uh, criterion. Uh, I uh, had uh, found through a panel four people inside the CIA when I was a director who had made serious mistakes uh, and that had led to Aldrich Ames uh, being able to spy for, for several years. And then we finally caught him. Uh, he was a mole for the Russians. Uh, and uh, uh, I had a lot of people tell me, okay, fire somebody, Woolsey. And uh, uh, I said, but the four people who messed up are all retired, and you can't fire somebody who's retired. And they kept saying, it don't, doesn't matter. Fire somebody. Fire somebody. Uh, <laughs> and you? so, you know, <laughs> sometimes you don't have the tools that you need in order to implement uh, an ideal decision. Uh, and uh, that may be the case here. Well, I have to wonder, though, last night we heard from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, uh, as well as President Trump's national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, and both of them came out and categorically denied the stories. And then President Trump came out this morning and uh, tweeted basically what is being taken as a confirmation of some elements of the story, namely that uh, that he did share some information uh, with the Russian uh, foreign minister and others just to get some cooperation. I mean, what does this do necessarily to the credibility? Sharing information is done all the time even sometimes with countries with which we have uh, very tough, uh, difficult uh, relations. Uh, it's the president's decision whether that information uh, is, uh, whether or not it's formally classified, is, uh, if revealed to the Russians, damaging or not. He may have some other reason that he wanted to uh, uh, disclose it. Uh, he's the authority to uh, to decide. And uh, uh, whoever is leaking this, 
uh, information uh, may or may not be substantively correct that it is uh, serious. Uh, we don't know because we don't know what the information is. Um, you were involved in treaty negotiations with the Soviet Union for five years in the 1980s. So I yes. think that it puts you uh, in a uniquely good position to comment on what the U.S.'s relationship with Russia could be in its ideal and what it should be. I mean, basically, does this is this issue complicated by our sort of uh, difficult past with Russia? Well, not particularly by that. It's complicated by uh, uh, Russia's uh, instinct to uh, want to continue to uh, absorb, uh, uh, sometimes by force, uh, uh, nations that are uh, near them, uh, Ukraine, uh, et cetera. Uh, so that's a major part of the problem. Uh, I was in four negotiations with the Soviets uh, still at all those times. And uh, uh, three of them uh, limped along. It took a long time. One uh, succeeded very quickly, and that was mainly, however, because the Berlin Wall had collapsed in uh, 89. And uh, in early 90, uh, uh, the Russians were extremely cooperative. Uh, you've never seen such nice Russians uh, as uh, after the Berlin Wall collapsed. Uh, so uh, when they feel they're at a strategic disadvantage, uh, they can be uh, really rather easy to get along with. When they do not feel that way, they can be extremely difficult to get along with. Last question. Uh, given your sense and your contacts within the intelligence community, do you feel like uh, the media is making too big of a deal of this? Well, the media needs to uh, distinguish uh, between uh, – counterintelligence investigations uh, and uh, criminal investigations. And uh, uh, the FBI, as far as I can tell here, is conducting a counterintelligence investigation. And uh, I can't find any crime. Uh, uh, and Andy McCarthy says this very well again in his blog today. I can't find what crime anybody might theoretically be investigating. So assume, uh, I believe, that you should, that it's a counterintelligence investigation. And that means that all of the things that people are saying about obstruction of justice and so forth don't really apply. Thank you so much for joining us. Truly appreciate your insights. Uh, James Woolsey Jr. was the former head of the Central Intelligence Agency from 1993 through 1995. Thank you uh, very much for your insights. Stephen Dennis, who's a congressional reporter for Bloomberg, uh, we are awaiting the press conference from H.R. McMaster, who's national security advisor. Uh, and while we while we wait uh, to hear what he has to say, Steve, I'd love to get your take on the uh, interview with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that our colleague uh, Kevin Cirilli did earlier today. Um, what did you think was the most important takeaway? Yeah, yeah, and sure. We also had him for a half an hour with the editorial board down here, and you know it's clear that Mitch McConnell is uh, sort of exasperated and frustrated. That was my take on the body language more than his actual words. He didn't really want to comment too much on Trump, other than to say he wishes he had a little less drama and focused on their agenda more than on other things. And uh, but you know, I, I think McConnell is doing his best to try to avoid getting, you know, giving this story any more oxygen. Uh, and he's basically saying, trying to have things bottled up in the Senate Intelligence Committee, deferring to them on whether there should be 
uh, tapes that are subpoenaed, whether they should even investigate what happened last week with the Russian ambassador and the classified information. This is a, a storyline that the Republicans on Capitol Hill cannot stand. They want to be talking about tax cuts. They want to be talking about regulatory reform. They want to be talking. They want to be getting health care over the finish line. And as long as the White House is sort of in a meltdown mode every week or every other day, uh, it makes that that job a little bit harder. What kind of recourse do you get the sense that they have, the Republican leadership, to potentially uh, dampen some of the drama and just push forward their agenda? I, I you know, I think that they're talking to Trump and trying to. Uh, diffuse it as best they can. One of the things that McConnell told us is that the next FBI director should, you know, he told Trump this, should be somebody apolitical, uh, somebody like America Garland, not a politician, i.e. not McConnell's number two, John Cornyn. And just to, just um, to reiterate, Merrick Garland had been nominated to uh, fill the empty role uh, that was emptied by Antonin Scalia. Uh, by So he was nominated to fill that on the Supreme Court by President Obama, but was not voted on uh, and was therefore dropped as a candidate, correct? Yeah, and he was a former prosecutor. So, I mean, theoretically, he could do the job, although apparently he's indicated he wants to stay a judge, you know, the chief judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is, of course, has a life time appointment instead of working at the pleasure of Donald Trump. So I don't think that that's likely. But the kind of thing that, that McConnell's emphasizing here is that Trump needs to show the country that he understands the role of the FBI director, that it should be somebody apolitical, somebody with a law enforcement background. And, you know, I think one of the things that we're hearing from other senators on on, uh, on the Hill this week is that it's absolutely critical that they try to get Democratic votes, given that this, you know, the president said on Thursday to NBC that the reason why he fired James, uh, James Comey was because he was upset about the Russia investigation. So the, I, I think there's a there's a credibility problem here on both sides of the, of the aisle, and who knows who he can who he's going to pick. But that is a critical issue on on the minds of a lot of Republicans is that he needs to pick somebody with credibility. Stephen, one of the most interesting interesting things that I found from the interview with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was that he said that he would like any tax plan to be revenue neutral, and this kind of went against some things that we've heard from President Trump. Can you elaborate? Yeah. So uh, I, I think McConnell is really laying down the law on the deficit here on both taxes, on infrastructure. Uh, just in general, he's saying, look, we don't want to pass bills that are going to increase our debt. We already have a $20 trillion debt. It's alarming. Uh, I'm not interested in passing a bill that's going to increase the deficit. He is willing to have some, you know, uh, what they call dynamic scoring to give some credit for tax cuts to juice the economy. But uh, in the end, that score has to come across as not adding to the deficit. That's very different from what we've heard from some conservatives, as well as the president, who is much more focused on tax cuts. And uh, so it's sort of like Mitch McConnell is sort of riding sheriff here. Um, While the president may want to borrow money to build roads and bridges, Mitch McConnell says, hey, you have to pay for it. And while the president might want to have a, the biggest tax cut since Reagan or ever, Mitch McConnell saying, hey, uh, we actually have to pay for it by closing loopholes somewhere else. And so that's going to be a very 
you know, he's sort of saying we're going to have to eat our vegetables with our dessert here. <laughs> Steven, you know, I wanted to get your take. There is this feeling right now that Washington is at a sort of stasis, uh, embroiled in this drama, unable to move forward with some basic legislation. You're on the ground there. Is that an accurate portrayal or is there actual work getting done and it's just uh, the media that are uh, buzzing around and, and sort of uh, getting lost in the drama? I think legislators are trying to compartmentalize. Um, you know, they have to react to the tweets of the moment or the controversies or the firings or the, this this huge story on leaking classified uh, information, allegedly. Uh, that's frustrating to them, but they are trying to compartmentalize that with what they're trying to accomplish at the same time. They were able to keep the government open. They had a big omnibus spending deal, of course, a few weeks ago. They are trying to come up with, you know, the first parts of a budget deal for next year to keep the government open. And on health care, Republicans and even some Democrats are starting to meet all over Capitol Hill every single day. And they're hashing out things like Medicaid, whether the tax cuts stay in the bill, uh, sort of the whole all the pieces of health care. And, and, and on the ground, behind those closed doors, they're really focused on those details, not so much on the president's tweets. But, you know, it does take an awful lot of the political oxygen out of the room. Stephen Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. Stephen Dennis is a congressional reporter for Bloomberg coming to us from Washington, D.C. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. Well, emerging markets debt has been one of the hottest asset classes this year. Investors have been piling in money at a really a record pace into uh, mutual funds that own this debt. And yet, typically, this asset class is correlated to both the Federal Reserve raising rates as well as oil prices, which have been declining. Why are they not this time around? I want to bring in Damian Sassauer, who's our Bloomberg intelligence uh, strategist, focusing on fixed income in the emerging market space. Damian, I'm so glad that you could join us. Uh, you wrote a, a, a piece that I thought was really compelling, talking about how the correlation between emerging markets debt, in particular in company in countries that are oil dependent, has completely broken down from energy prices. What's going on here? Yeah, no, I mean, so um, corporate and quasi sovereign debt, actually, the, the, the corporations themselves so Petrobras, Sinopec, uh, uh, Pemex, some of the, you know, upstream producers, they have historically had a very high correlation to the price of oil. And um, on the latest downturn, although oil prices have come back, you know, pretty shockingly in the last you know week and a half, uh, those spreads have broken down. I mean, you have equity prices, you know, trading in line with um, 
with oil prices falling effectively, but bond spreads have tightened. And uh, that's something new. That certainly is not what we saw when crude plunged from 2014 to 16. So, so what's going on here? Is this just a matter of people closing their eyes and, and covering <laughs> their ears and going, la, 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 la? Or is there something real underneath Well, this? Lisa, I mean, this is basically the microcosm of a much broader trend that you and I have talked about. You know, this is this is about fund flows. This is about EM cash flows, which are improving. These are about, um, it's about new issuance. You know, we've We've seen record new issuance year-to-date in emerging market debt, yet the fund flows into the asset class and, you know, the cash flows that the asset class is is, is basically returning to investors has exceeded that. And so, you know, it's just, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really structural. It's really supply-demand technicals that are driving spreads right now. Okay, so when I talk to investors who still are bullish on emerging markets credit, they say a couple things to me. They say, first of all, uh, these nations, uh, the developing nations, are deleveraging <laughs> compared to developed <laughs> nations, which are boosting their leverage. Uh, they also are growing at faster paces. Uh, they also have more stability than they used to. Uh, let's talk about deleveraging. Are they deleveraging? Um, so it, it depends, right? You've got certain nations where you are, in fact, seeing debt to GDP um, decline, um, like the Philippines, for example. But, you know, by and large, and permit me, the data is a little bit, it, it's lagged. You know, debt to GDP figures don't normally come out, you know, as they're reported, they're usually a three to six month lag. But by and large, we're not seeing um, deleveraging at the sovereign level in emerging markets. Um, in fact, if you look at countries, for example, Saudi Arabia, They've gone from zero to 30% debt to GDP in less than a year. And um, and that's a single A, well, double A, single A, depending upon who, which rating agency you're looking at, uh, credit right now. And one of the largest issuers in the past uh, 12 months. So, you know, you've got others, though, like Russia, who have been effectively um, blocked out of the international capital markets, right, because of the sanctions with the U.S. and EU. And so they've seen, you know, debt levels decline simply because they can't access the market. Right. So. so you're saying it's patchy. And so some people could say, well, it's a great time for security selection to go in and find the, uh, the the credits in nations that have been deleveraging. One counter argument to that could be that, as we've been talking about, this is a mood driven asset class. When people pour money in, they pile in. When yeah. they take money out, they pile out. So couldn't, regardless of your security selection, couldn't people be uh, left in a bad spot if the tide turns? Absolutely. I mean, my colleague, Mike McGlone, as uh, he always says, you know, these asset classes take the escalator up and the elevator down. Right. So and emerging markets, <laughs> <I like that. laughs> it's it's exactly the same thing. I think what's drawing in investors, it's really four things right now. It's it's carry. Right. I mean, it's always been a carry play. The yields are higher in emerging markets. Historically, they have been anyway. They're getting to a point now where, you know, they're they're trading in line and, and certainly as investment grade issuers such as, you know, I mean, China's been a third of new issuance this year, and most of those new issuers are IG, so are high grades. So effectively, this emerging market index that used to sit with high yield is now becoming a much broader, more diversified um, asset class. And that's the other thing. The, the opportunity set has expanded. We've seen $292 billion of new issuance year to date. And the diversification by issuers, I mentioned Saudi Arabia, but you've also had uh, benchmark new issuance from Kuwait, Amman, Argentina, all access the market this year. So you've got a diversified, uh, you know, opportunity set uh, more so than you had, you know, in years past, right? And so um, take all of that into consideration, and then you see the fund flows. I mean, this year we've seen twenty billion into hard currency. Another, you know, this is just this year. Another five billion into local currency emerging and that's market a record, debt. Right? This is unprecedented. Right? I, I have to double check on that, but I would say it's pretty close. I mean, the, the fund flows and these are retail fund flows. And I'm only looking at the top 150, um, you know, uh, 
open end and exchange traded funds, you know, that are listed effectively. So, but yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been gangbusters. And I think the one area that we probably should also mention here are, um, are cash flows from the asset class, you know, coupon income, right. principal redemptions. It's all fueling, you know, the returns. Yeah. People just keep piling that money back into this debt. The question is, uh, what will come when the tide does turn? Damien Sassauer, thank you so much for joining us. Damien Sassauer is a fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence here in New York City. Well, right now is Infrastructure Week. It is happening from May 15th through May 19th. Uh, and two uh, officials wanted to highlight their plan for making the infrastructure system of the U.S. great again. Ray LaHood is former U.S. Department of Transportation Secretary from 2009 to 2013. Uh, and Ed Rendell is former Pennsylvania governor from 2003 to 2011, as well as the Democratic National Committee chairman during the 2000 presidential election. Uh, Ray and Ed, thank you so much for joining me. One thing I wanted to start with, I was reading uh, through your proposal for a $2 trillion uh, infrastructure investment that combines public and private spending between now and uh, 2025. Uh, Ray, I'd love to start with you. Based on your conversations with officials in Washington uh, and some of the rhetoric that we've heard out of the uh, Trump administration, are you more optimistic that there will be some kind of extensive infrastructure spending plan that will be implemented in the short term? Well, I am optimistic because President Trump talked about this uh, in his campaign. He's talked about it since he was elected president uh, more recently. Uh, in the last 10 days, he talked about raising the gas tax to pay for his trillion-dollar infrastructure program. His Secretary of Transportation, Elaine Chao, gave a speech yesterday at the beginning of Infrastructure Week talking about uh, the use of federal dollars for with public-private partnership money. Uh, all of the signals are very, very good, and it's about time. Uh, America's infrastructure is rotting, and we don't have the money to to pay for uh, fixing up our bridges and our roads and our transit systems. And uh, now now is the time to be doing it. And it appears that uh, the administration is talking a good game about it. It's time for Congress to take action. Well, Governor Rendell, I'd love to get your take on what has taken so long. I mean, uh, according to your proposal, uh, it would combine public funding as well as uh, private sources of financing. Uh, but it would include a more uh, Build America bonds as well as other, uh, you know, potential uh, stripping away some of the restrictions on taxing inter, uh, interstate highways. Can you give me a sense of why there's been resistance up till now for a program like this? Well, I think it all stems from Washington's reluctance to, to raise revenue. I mean, Grover Nordquist has done a great job scaring the living daylights out of most of the Republicans and some of the Democrats about uh, doing anything to, to fund infrastructure repair. Everyone says we need to do something about our infra infrastructure, but no one wants to pay for it. And uh, uh, obviously we can't do it. We've, we need to pay for it some way. We can get the private sector involved, but they're only going to be part of the problem, uh, the solution. We need the government to step up. 23 states in the last five years have raised their own gas tax, uh, and we ought to be raising the federal gas tax. It's a bill proposed by Senator Bob Corker, a conservative from Tennessee, that would raise the gas tax 10 cents a gallon and index it to inflation. That's a step in the right direction. And to tell you the truth, Lisa, 
very few Americans, I give this speech all the time, and I ask people, what is the federal gas tax per gallon? And one out of 100 people know it's 17.8 cents a, a, a gallon. It hasn't been raised since 1993 when Bill Clinton was president. And before him, the great conservative Ronald Reagan raised the gas tax and said, why would we put off doing something today when if we wait 10 years, it's going to be twice as expensive? Ronald Reagan was right. It's time for us to build it now. It's time for the, the uh, uh, Congress to step up, to remove the ban on states for tolling roads, to give more money to the TIFIA program, uh, to do Build America's Bonds, and, and to raise the gas tax. If we do all these things, get the private sector involved, get the states and local government involved, and get some real federal dollars invest in our growth, We'll have a revitalized infrastructure. We'll be competitive again with the rest of the world. And we'll create two or three million uh, first-class family-sustaining jobs that pay somewhere between sixty dollars and $100,000 working on the roads and bridges and working on the water systems, doing the things that are necessary, and, and manufacturing the steel and the asphalt and the aggregate that are necessary to do infrastructure. Right. Secretary LaHood, I'd love to get your sense on the most pressing project that really needs to get done within the next few years in order to keep uh, the U.S. Uh, competitive. I, I thought that it was really compelling that you highlighted how the U.S. was ranked 11th by, uh, by the WEF in a recent survey for its infrastructure uh, system from, what was it, number one in 2005? What does it need to mm-hmm. do to get, get back up to speed? Uh, well, we have 60,000 structurally deficient bridges. They need to be fixed. The Northeast Corridor, uh, certainly the Gateway Project, which would add additional co- new capacity uh, to people in the New York, New Jersey region, is an important project. Uh, the California High-Speed Rail Project in California is an important project. There are important projects all over America. I mean, we could go. you can go region by region or state by state. Every state has a, uh, one or two or three very, very important projects that have kind of languished because uh, the federal government has, has really uh, stepped aside from its responsibility to provide the money. And now there seems to be some leadership and some good discussion about a trillion-dollar infrastructure program. And uh, if that happens, every state in the country will benefit from it. Well, Secretary LaHood, I I wanted to follow up on that because you wrote a book, Seeking Bipartisanship, My Life in Politics. And right now uh, we are seeing anything but bipartisanship uh, in Congress. And I'm wondering, you know, given the developments in Washington over the past few weeks, uh, has that put a damper on some of your enthusiasm and optimism about the potential for a one trillion infrastructure spending plan, which we really haven't heard much about? I do think transportation uh, has been and should continue to be a bipartisan issue that Congress can deal with. I served in Congress for 14 years. I was on the Transportation Committee for six of those years. We passed two six-year bills. We did it in a bipartisan way. Uh, 75 members on the committee, all 75 members voted for the bill. Over 400 members of the House voted for those bills. Over 80 members of the Senate. That's what we need to get back to. And uh, in spite of the fact that there is a lot of acrimony and angst about uh, some of the things that the Trump administration has done, I do think that the idea of transportation and infrastructure and fixing uh, our, our 
ailing tr- uh, transportation system uh, can can be bipartisan, and um, I hope that it will be. Ray LaHood, a former U.S. Department of Transportation Secretary from 2009 to 2013, as well as former Pennsylvania Governor Ed Rendell and Democratic National Committee Chairman during the 2000 presidential election. Thank you both so much for joining us on this Infrastructure Week day, talking about uh, how we really need a $2 trillion infrastructure investment between now and 2025 to close uh, an investment gap that is becoming ever more prevalent each day. And uh, just to sort of reiterate an earlier point, uh, the World Economic Forum ranked the competitiveness of the U.S. infrastructure system as number 11, down from number one in 2005. So it definitely points to uh, much needed infrastructure. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.